Hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other Conversations podcast, where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. Maybe you guys have had this experience where, you know, you sit down to read your Bible for the day and you're going through a book or you're reading a particular passage and you read the passage and then you, you step back and you think to yourself, what in the world am I going to do with that passage? Like, how do I apply that to my life? Maybe you're in the book of Numbers Maybe you're in the book of Ezekiel, and and there's just the passage just doesn't seem to have an obvious application to it. Have you guys ever had that before? Have you ever struggled with that before? Uh, If you haven't, then you're just really spiritual, I guess. Um, But man, I have that all the time. In fact, this week I sat down like I do early in the week, and I opened up the passage um, that I was going to teach for this week, and it's always kind of an exciting moment for me. It's like unwrapping a present. You're like, what is this week going to be? I'm super excited. So I sat down and I read Acts 23, verses 12 to the end of the chapter, And I'm like, what am I going to (laughs) do with this passage? Like, there is not a clear thing here that I could see. I mean, it's an exciting story, um, but man, there was no obvious application. There was no mention of God in this passage. There is no theology in the passage. There's no imperatives. There's not even any declaratives. I mean, there's just very much a short tidbit of a larger story. And I'm just thinking, how am I going to teach that this week? And then I thought, well, you know what? Maybe this would be an opportunity for us as a church to talk about how to read hard passages, how to interpret and apply passages that don't necessarily jump off the page at you, how to interpret passages that seem kind of tricky uh, to deal with. So that's actually what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about that. Now, you basically have three options when it comes to hard passages. The first option is that you can just read it out of duty. Ever done that? You're just like, I know I'm in Leviticus And I don't want to be in Leviticus, but I'm going to keep reading so I can get to Matthew, right? Like there's just a sense of duty. I need to do it. I should do it. So I'm going to do it. But that's not really treasuring God's word. Like, right, that's not really like, like seeing every word, like 2 Timothy 3.16 all, says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. Paul says all scripture, all scripture is, is basically to be treasured and applied. So if we're just reading it out of duty, that, that may be not the best way to do it. Another way you can do it is you can just see it as something, um, you can see something in the passage that's not there. You know, you sort of squint your eyes and turn your head and you're like, oh man, I see something there. Um, And and we we can all do that. You know, you can make up stuff that's not in the text. But that's not really uh, being honest about the passage, right? That's not really being honest. That's just trying to find something that maybe isn't there. And 2 Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So that means that we need to handle this thing carefully. It's not something that we just open up and say, well, this is what this means to me, right? We need to handle it carefully. The third option with hard passages is you can interact with it correctly. 
You can interact with it correctly. You can understand its purpose and you can apply its implications and you can understand its context. And that's what I want to help uh, all of us to learn maybe to do this morning, to give you some tools to apply hard passages because we don't want to ignore them and we don't want to skip over them. We don't want to see something that's not there. We want to see what truly is there. Now to do that, we need to start from a place of treasuring God's word, right? We need to treasure God's word. Now treasuring something part of treasuring something uh, is taking the time to know what it actually says. Taking the time to know what it actually says. Uh, Part of loving someone is understanding who they really are, right? Part of of loving something or treasuring something is figuring it out, figuring out how it actually works. I'm kind of that guy sometimes where like I'll buy something and I don't take the time to figure out how to actually use it. So I get frustrated with like, this vacuum cleaner doesn't work. And in reality, I just didn't take the time to figure out how to make it work, right? That's not treasuring something. Uh, my wife and I were watching a clip the other day of Jimmy Kimmel, and they were, they were walking around. Was it Kimmel or Fallon? I get them confused. doesn't matter. They're like the same guy. Um, so anyways, they're, they're, somebody was walking around the streets of LA interviewing couples, men and women, some of them dating, many of them married. Um, and they asked the guy questions about their spouse or significant other. Not hard questions. Questions like, when's her birthday? <laughs> and the guys didn't know. And then they're asking, like, what's her eye color? And there was literally guys who were like, I don't know. The funniest one was the, the, they asked the guy, what's her favorite food? And he was like, well, I don't know. That's a tough one. And she like goes, really? She holds her arm out. She has a massive tattoo of pizza on her arm. It's like, seriously? Like these guys, you know, like they, I'm sure they love their, their wives or whatever, but it's like to love someone, to treasure someone is to take the time to know the reality of who they are, right? Uh, and, and, and so if we treasure the scripture, we have to start by actually understanding the truth of what it is. Now listen, the question for the scriptures cannot be, what does it mean to me? It can't be, what does it mean to me? The question for the scriptures has to be, what does it mean? And then how does that apply or affect me? Now, some of you might take that for granted, but a lot of people don't know that. You don't open the Bible and decide for yourself what it means for you. You have to open it and decide what it means. Part of treasuring the word is pursuing a greater understanding of the word, double-clicking on it, looking more deeply. I think of Psalm chapter 1. Verse one, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law or the word of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So we are to be people that not only know the book, understand the book, but treasure the book and look for the deeper meaning of the passages, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus in 51, he says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his house treasure, what is new and what is old. So we as people of the kingdom, we're to be diving into the book, bringing out treasure that is both old and new. That's, this is our, our call as people of the book. I think about the show Antiques Roadshow. You guys ever seen that? If you ever want to fall asleep at night, turn on Antiques Roadshow. It's like the most boring show in the world, except for that one time where someone brings some dusty old piece of junk and they set it down and they say, yeah, I don't know if this thing's worth anything. And then they go, actually, it's worth $5 million. And then the people go, what? And they freak out and it's super exciting. It's kind of like NASCAR. You know, it's really, really boring, except for two seconds, maybe at one point. Um, No offense. 
all you NASCAR people. But my point is, is that some, something may not seem like treasure at first, but you, you sort of dig into it and dive into it and you begin to see the value in the worth of it. And God promises us, didn't he, that he would reveal truth to us. Jesus said in John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, did the spirit of truth come, by the way, where we're sitting right now? Did he come? Yeah? Are you guys awake? Did he come? He came. Okay. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. So we have the spirit of God to equip us and enable us to treasure and chew the cud and meditate on every word um, in the Bible. So I say that as a backdrop. Now, here's my intention for this morning. My intention is to help all of us read our Bibles better to help us read our Bibles better. Now think of this morning a little bit less like a sermon and a little bit more of a hermeneutics class, okay? Hermeneutics is kind of a large fancy word for the rules of biblical interpretation, okay? Or the science of biblical interpretation. It's basically um, the, the paradigm that we take into the scriptures and say, this is how we decide how to interpret the scriptures. And it's not something that only Bible teachers need to know. It's something that all of us, as Jesus says, in the kingdom, as scribes of the kingdom of God, we need to be those that understand good hermeneutics because we want to treasure and value the word of God. So my outline for this morning, which I gave to you, is really simple. We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at, um, first of all, we're going to ask three questions about the context. We're going to ask three questions about the context. And then we're going to ask three questions about the text. We're going to ask three questions about the context, ask three questions about the text. So the passage that we had this morning is going to become kind of a case study for us, um, a Petri dish, if you will, of how to do biblical hermeneutics. Uh, and we'll walk through it together. But before we get to the passage, I want to ask these three questions about the context. So you guys have a handout. You can fill in the blanks if that's your thing. If that helps you focus, um, they're there for you. And it'll also just help you follow along in the outline. So let's talk about context. Okay, now... The, the, the most important rule of biblical interpretation is what? Anybody? Context, context, context. Three things. Number one, context. Number two, context. Number three, context. Okay, this is so, so important because the Bible, when you approach the Bible, you're not reading a single volume by a single author written at a single point in time. When you read the Bible, you are reading a library. Do you understand that? A library of books, different genres, different authors, of course, all led by the Holy Spirit, different writing styles, different purposes within each book of the Bible, written within different languages, in different millennia, uh, and written within different covenants. The, the, the Bible literally spans between the old Mosaic covenant all the way into the new uh, covenant of Christ. So, so, so we literally need to approach this thing understanding the context. Let me explain it like this. If you bumped into somebody who was from China, let's say, and, and, they, and they said, where are you from? I guarantee you wouldn't say, I am from 10th Street, would you? They would say, oh, great. No, where would you start? You would say, you would start with the continent that you're on. I am from America. And then you would narrow it into the, the 
country that you're from. The United States of America. Then you would narrow it into the state that you're from. I'm from Oregon. And then if they really know their stuff, you might even narrow it down to say, I'm from a place called Grants Pass, and I live on 10th Street in Grants Pass. So you start large and you zoom in narrow. The problem is when we approach the scriptures, a lot of times we start small and, and hope to develop some kind of a big picture when in reality we need to start large and move in small. By the way, uh, kind of a funny thing, when I was in Israel uh, a few years back, there was a group of high school kids from Israel who were on a field trip, and they saw us, and they said, are you from America? And we're like, yep. And they're like, where are you from? Or no, 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 I'm messing up the story. They asked us where we were from. We said we were from America, and they were like, duh, where are you from? And we're like, Oregon. And they're like, okay, where? (laughs) And we're like, "Uh, we're from Southern Oregon. They're like, oh, Go Ducks. <laughs> We're like, what? We're in Israel, for crying out loud. Like, they, they knew where we lived. I mean, it was just the craziest thing. But, uh, yeah, I, I digress. So, we're going to ask three questions regarding context. And these are questions that maybe you don't need to ask every single time, but they're questions you need to keep in mind as you're studying the Bible, as we're, if we're going to be good students of the Word. So these three questions are extremely important. And again, we're going to start large and we're going to zoom small. The first question is, why was the Bible written? Why was the Bible written? Now, that's a question that might seem obvious, but how many times have you really answered that question? Why was the Bible written. It's something we need to ask because the answer to that question directly affects the way that you interpret a particular passage. So let me start by explaining why the Bible was not written, okay? Why the Bible was not written. The Bible was not written to be a personalized self-help manual. Now, a lot of Western Christians think that that was why the Bible was written. This thing was written to help me be a better version of me, to have my best life now. Thank you, Olstein. right? That is not why the Bible was written. The Bible was not written to be a rule book. It was not written to be a rule book. It was not written to be a fortune cookie to tell us who to marry and what job to take and when to move and when to buy a house. The Bible is not a personalized love letter from God. Okay? That one might be a little more controversial, but I just don't think it is. The Bible is not a history of everything God has ever done. It follows a particular thread throughout human history. The Bible is not an answer for all the questions that we may have. Now, uh, at the risk of, I I don't want to get into this because this is controversial, but it was interesting. It was interesting um, that a few days ago, when the whole thing happened with Donald Trump pushing out the, the crowd, I'm not getting into that, but when he pushed out the crowd and he got the Bible and he got the picture or whatever, um, the, the Episcopal um, bishop of the church that he stood in front of made a statement, a, a world global statement, basically, um, about the purpose of the Bible. And I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting timing. And she said, the Bible, here's what she said, the Bible is not an American document. That's true. She said, it is not an expression of our country. That's true. It is an expression, listen listen to what she said. It is an expression of the human struggle to serve and love and know God. Now, Ryan actually pointed this out on on our Slack community. I thought it was so interesting. That's actually not true. (laughs) It sounds good. It sounds good. I'm not trying to nitpick her here, okay? But, but the reality, is the Bible really an expre- the story of the expression of the human struggle to serve God? I don't think so. I think the Bible is the story of God loving us. <laughs> and if anything, it's the 
failure of the human uh, ability to worship and love and serve God. So why was the Bible written? Okay, the Bible is revelation. You guys are familiar with that term. It means that something is revealed. The Bible is God's divine revelation to mankind. And what is God revealing in the Bible? Well, first of all, he's revealing who he is, right? He's revealing who he is. It is the revelation of himself. So if you're filling in the blanks, A, who God is. The Bible was written as a divine revelation, who God is, and that is the revelation of himself, okay, through the Son, by the Spirit. Okay, the second thing the Bible is, is it, and why it was written, it was written um, to reveal why God made the world. It was written to reveal why God made the world. It's the revelation of our human origins, Our human origins, that's one of the main questions every human asks. Where did I come from? Did I come from apes? Did I come from primordial soup? Did I come from the back of crystals? Did I come from a terrestrial drop-off? Or did I come from, as Genesis states, a God who created me in his own image for his own purpose? The Bible reveals why the world is broken. See, why the world is broken. Okay, so the Bible reveals to us the human condition. And really, you could say almost the entire Old Testament is a testament to human failure to worship God correctly. The Bible does not flinch about revealing the sinfulness of human beings, does it not? I mean, just about every story in the Old Testament, we blow it, starting with our father, Adam. So humanity reveals to us the human condition and the human inability to follow God. That's why I disagree with that statement that she made, because I I don't think the Bible's all about how we just want to worship God and it's about our struggle to worship God. I don't think so. Our primary nature is against God, yet God pursues us. And here's the main thing, okay? The main thing that the Bible reveals to us, why it was written, is it reveals how God is saving the world. How God is saving the world. It is the revelation. If I had to put why the Bible was written into one sentence, this would be it. It is the revelation of God's redemptive work to restore his creation back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. That is what the book is about. It is about God redeeming all of creation back to himself through the central character of Jesus Christ. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we find the proto-euangelion, which means the first good news, which was the first promise that God made to redeem humankind after the fall in Genesis 3.15. From that point, all the way to Revelation 21, where we see the heavens and the earth completely renovated and restored, is all the story of God redeeming humankind. Amen? That is the point of the Bible. It's not written for us to open up and find something about our day and how we should make decisions and how we can be a better person. It's a story about how God, listen, has redeemed humankind on the cross and is now continuing to finish that work. And you're saying, why does that matter, Sam? Wow, it's really raining. It's really raining. Um, Why does that matter? It matters because, listen, you're not reading your story. You're reading his story. This is a book about God and his redemptive work. And so if you open it expecting to find you in there, now, you're going to be disappointed. That doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. It doesn't mean that you're not part of God's story. It doesn't mean that you're not part of what God's doing. But this book was not written for you to open up and find something for yourself. The second question we need to ask about context is why was the book of, in this case, Acts written? 
So again, we're starting large. Why was the Bible written? Okay, well, we're reading the book of Acts. Why was the book of Acts written? Why was the book of Acts written? And we went over this when we first started our series in the book of Acts. But if you don't understand why the book of Acts was written, you're not going to have a very easy time understanding why the passage you're reading in Acts is written. Does that make sense? So what kind of material is the book of Acts? The book of Acts is historical narrative. That means that Luke, the author, is recording something that happened in history. It also has a lot of recorded sermons in it, but majority of the material of the book of Acts is historical narrative. Okay, now why did Luke write it? Why did Luke write it? He wrote it, A, if you're taking notes, if you're filling in the blanks, A, to reveal the power of the gospel bringing life into a dead world. Bringing life into a dead world. If you're super quick, flip back to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and look at what Luke said when he started writing the book of Acts. It's one of the most important verses in the book of Acts for interpreting the book of Acts. He says, in the first book, what is the first book? Anyone? Luke. In the first book, Luke, O Theophilus, whoever that is, the person he's writing to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after, et cetera, et cetera. So what do we learn about why the book is written from this passage? He's saying that I'm continuing to tell the story of Jesus Christ. I started it in the book of Luke, and now we continue the story of Jesus Christ. And you're saying, how is Acts a continuation of the story of Jesus Christ? It's not in his body presently, it's in his body, the church. The church is the body of Christ, continuing the work of Christ through the church. So why was Luke written? It was written to record the continued movement of Christ's life manifested through this world. B, Luke wrote Acts to reveal the manifestation of the kingdom. I'm going to use some big words, but I'll explain them. After the ascension and the session of the king. The manifestation of the kingdom after the ascension and the session of the kingdom, of the king, pardon me. What ascension means is Jesus went up. What session means is he took a seat. He took a seat at the right hand of the Father. And a lot of people neglect talking about the session of Christ. It's not something you hear much. But part of the accomplished work of the cross was not only that Jesus rose and not only that he went to heaven, but that he sat in the throne at the right hand of the Father commanding all power. That's a big deal. Okay, so the book of Acts is to record the, the, the outward manifestation of God's kingdom as it grows. How does it grow? It grows through us. It grows through the church as the power of the gospel explodes with growth. See, Luke wrote Acts to reveal the birth and the maturation of the church. The birth and the maturation, in other words, the growing up, the conception and the growing up of the church. We learn about how the church started, how it began. Okay, so this is why the book of Acts is written. Now, you might think that's kind of dry. Okay, that's kind of dry. But if you miss the point of the book, then you miss the point of the passage. If you miss the point of the book, then you, you, you miss the point of the passage. The, the, the Bible was written by the Holy Spirit through people. And each of those people had what is called authorial intent. intent. They had an intent behind what they were writing, right? They were, Luke wrote Acts for a purpose. He didn't just write it to write it. It wasn't just random. It wasn't just randomly organized material. He wrote it with a purpose in mind. And our job is those who treasure scripture is to step back and say, why did Luke write this material? 
And it is our job to figure that out because the Holy Spirit inspired that in Luke. So the third question, the third question is, why was this section written? See how we're getting smaller? We started with the Bible, we moved down to the book of Acts, and now we get into the section of Scripture. Um, Rick Boya, one of my favorite pastors, he says, if you drop the book of Acts from three feet, it busts into three parts, okay? Uh, the first part is um, Jerus- the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And then the second part is the gospel in the nations through Paul and his team. And the third part is the gospel going to Rome. And that's all of Paul's trials. And that's where we're at right now. We're in this third section of the book of Acts where Paul is being arrested or has been arrested, and he's standing before different courts, and he's testifying. Now, why does that matter? If you're super quick, flip back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Luke gives us another key as to why he's writing the book of Acts, and he gives us a key to what the material we're about to read matters. Chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, that's Jesus, because he hasn't ascended yet at this point, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons. In other words, I'm going to restore the kingdom. I'm going to come. But it's not for you to know the time that the Father is fixed, he says, by his own authority. Listen, but you will receive. Now, Jesus is going to give them a foreshadow of what's going to happen. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That happened at Pentecost. And you will be my witnesses, Martyrion, witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is that? That is the roadmap of the gospel movement in the book of Acts. It's the roadmap. And the book follows that exact sequence. The gospel starts in Jerusalem. It moves out from Jerusalem to Judea, which is the region of Jerusalem, out from Judea to Samaria and the north, and then to the ends of the earth. So why does Luke take seven or eight chapters to explain how Paul got arrested and got shipped from one person to another person, eventually to Rome and to Caesar? Why does that material matter? Can't we just skip it and get right on to the next book of the Bible? Why did Luke put it there? He put it there because he is showing how the gospel is moving to the ends of the earth. And where is Rome? From Jerusalem. Okay, I know we know the world's a big round ball now, but just remember, they didn't, they didn't know that. Okay, I know some of you don't think it's round. That's okay. Um, so <laughs> uh, it, they, they, the, for them, the world was very small. Okay, the, from them, the world was basically from Rome over to sort of Persia and that area. I mean, like we're talking like to like Iran and that area. So that, that was basically their world. They knew some of, of the eastern parts of the world. Um, they knew some of the northern parts of the world. But for them, that was the world. So Rome at that point was the ends of the world, right? That was the end. They didn't know the Americas were there. They didn't have a clue. So what Luke is recording is he's recording that Jesus is doing exactly what he said he was going to do, okay? Now, keeping all that in mind, that's the context Keeping all that in mind, now let's look at the passage. Okay, now let's look at the passage. So Luke 23, sorry, Acts 23, Acts 23, verse 12. We'll just walk through it. Now remember, I I know this is a lot of knowledge. This is a lesson in hermeneutics, okay? Uh, I'm gonna walk through the passage with you guys, and then we're going to stop and ask some questions about the passage that hopefully will be tools in your toolbox to better interpret scripture. So if you remember, Paul just got arrested. 
because there was a mob trying to kill him. He got arrested by the Romans. He stood and testified to the people trying to kill him of the gospel, because that's what you do when you're a good missionary. People try to kill you. You turn around and tell them about Jesus, I guess. You know, that's what, that's what Paul did. Um, he gets arrested. Then he stands before the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin ends up getting in a massive fight about the resurrection because <laughs> Paul kind of started it. Okay, we looked at that last week. Jesus comes to Paul and encourages him. And then we punch in here at verse 12. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Which Jews are we talking about? It's the Jews probably from Ephesus that had it out for Paul. They hated him, hated him. They wanted him dead, so much so that they literally said, we will never eat food again until he's dead. Okay, that's pretty intense. I mean, I can't go like six hours without eating food. So these guys, you know, uh, that was a joke. That was, that was a joke. Okay. Um, so he goes like, oh, he never fasts. Um, okay, so these guys take an oath. Uh, verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy, so 40 men. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, don't be too impressed by these guys. If they broke their oath, they just go down to the temple, make a sacrifice. They're off the hook and having a cheeseburger, although it would have been a kosher cheeseburger because they're Jews. Okay, verse 15. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near Okay, so that basically is saying that these 40 men go to the Sanhedrin, the religious council, and they say, hey, uh, how about you guys tell the Romans to bring Paul that you need to, to deliberate more, and on the way, we'll jump him and we'll kill him. That's essentially what they're saying. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, that's kind of interesting. Paul has a nephew. Didn't know that, right? doesn't say anything more about him. That's all we know. But Paul apparently had family in Jerusalem, and one of those family is his sister's kid. His sister's kid somehow, miraculously, happens to overhear this plot to kill Paul. And he runs in, and he, and he basically tells Paul about it. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So we took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of this thing. The tribune actually handles this pretty well. First of all, he's wise enough to listen to what this young guy has to say. He invites him in, he listens. And as this young man tells him about the plot to kill Paul, he goes, okay, go your way. Don't tell anybody about it. Because if you tell anybody about it, you're going to end up dead because they're going to find out that you snitched and it's all going to go bad from there. So rather than the tribune trying to pick a fight with these Jews and rather than him trying to expose this young man, he just says, okay, don't tell anybody, I'll deal with it. Verse 23, and he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul, give him something to ride on. 
and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Felix was the governor of Judea. Okay, so he was the governor of the larger region, the next guy up in uh, the food chain. Okay, so he basically sends half of all the provisional military that would have been in Jerusalem to guard Paul. Seems excessive, right? Seems excessive, but he does. And he wrote a letter to this effect. So um, this guy, we'll find out his name is Lysias. He sits down and he writes a letter to Felix, the governor. Now, this is kind of interesting if you're a nerd like me and you like history, because this seems to be an exact verbatim letter uh, of a Roman to a Roman, a Roman official to a Roman official. So if you're wondering, how did they talk to each other? This is it. Uh, Luke, the historian, would have had access to this letter. Uh, it would have been in public record. So uh, he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, talking about Paul, and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Oh, wait a minute. You're not really telling the truth completely there. He, he basically says that he rescued Paul when he found out he was a Roman citizen. The truth is he rescued Paul, was about to beat the snot out of him, and then he found out he was a Roman citizen and got a little bit worried and backed it up from there. But that's okay. Just pointing that out. 28, desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they, brought, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province Paul was from, and when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Okay, you guys are like, what do we do with that passage? I mean, it's, it's interesting. If you're a nerd like me and you're interested in history, it's interesting. There's no mention of the Lord. There's no mention of theology. There's no obvious things there that, that, that seem to... So, so you read a passage like that, okay? And even if you study it out, I mean, you read a few commentaries or you look at your study about, it's still hard to apply. I mean, Paul gets transferred to another governor. How do you apply that? How do you apply that? So here's where we're going to get to the next section. I want to give you three sort of universal questions that you can ask about a text that will help you think through its application, okay? Now, these aren't the only questions you can ask, but these are three that you could ask. In fact, in your discussion questions that we'll get into after the sermon, one of the questions is, what other questions could you ask that would help you determine the passage? But let's just look at these three. Question number one, what does this passage teach us about ourselves, and about humanity. Brian Chappell, uh, who's a, a pastor, teaches uh, homiletics, hermeneutics. He, he calls this a fallen condition focus. It's where you focus in on something in a passage that highlights something about humanity. So what can we learn about humanity from this passage? What can we learn about ourselves? Well, we can learn that our human tendency to fight the wrong enemy is, just happens all the time. We have this human tendency to fight the wrong enemy. So you have these 40 men, these 40 Jewish men, right? And they are so blinded. They're so blinded by their zeal. By the way, for those of you guys actually using the outline, I flipped 
point two and point one. So if you're confused, that's why. I, I starting with point two. Um, they're so blinded by their zeal and their passion, thinking that they're fighting for God, that they're actually working against God. They see Paul as their enemy. They think we need to kill Paul. And they're so passionate about the idea of killing Paul that they literally take this oath and will do anything. They're, they're le- literally ready to lose their lives against Roman guards just to kill Paul. Why are they so upset at him? They are blinded by their zeal and by their passion, thinking that they're fighting the right enemy when in fact they're fighting the one that has the truth. The enemy is actually not the one they're trying to destroy, which is Paul. The enemy is actually themselves. So this passage has something, I think, to teach us about humanity. It teaches us something about what it is to be a person. As people, now tell me if you can relate with this, as people, oftentimes we fight the wrong things, don't we? We're mad at the wrong things. And oftentimes we're angry at something or someone as the issue when in fact the issue really is us. Have you ever had that? Okay, my mom always used to tell me this joke. Uh, She said that, you know, there's the guy who has a mustache and he gets some Limburger cheese on his mustache, right? And stinks in here, okay? He's just like, he's he's in his house. He's like, this house stinks, right? So he goes outside and he walks around. Stinks outside too. Stupid. He gets in his car and he drives to the next county. This county stinks too. So he takes a long trip. He gets out of it. The whole country stinks. Maybe the whole world stinks, right? And in the reality, what stinks? He stinks, right? I mean, it's silly, but it's true. Okay, we oftentimes blame everyone and everything for problems when in reality, those things are actually just revealing something in us that needs to be dealt with. People do that with church all the time. If I ever hear someone say, there isn't a single church in this city that is X, Y, and Z, I go, eh, something's wrong. Okay, I've tried every single church, and every single church, there's a bunch of jerks. I can't get along with anyone in every church because all the churches are jerks. And I'm like, you know, there's a common denominator here. It's like the guy who's got married 10 times, and it was always something wrong with his wife. Like, this wife, this was wrong with her. This wife, this was wrong with her. And you're starting to think, yeah, maybe there's something wrong with you, right? Like, maybe the whole world doesn't stink. Maybe you actually have something on your mustache. Maybe every church in town isn't terrible. Maybe you're really hard to get along with. Maybe you have really high unrealistic standards for what humans can be like, okay? Unfortunately, a lot of times we begin to fight the things that we think are the enemy when, in fact, those things are revealing the enemy in us, These guys, these 40 men are intent on killing Paul because they think Paul is the enemy, but Paul has the gospel, which is the answer to the enemy, which is inside of them, which is their own sin and their own idolatry. We need to be careful when we direct and how we direct our anger and our passion. We need to realize that oftentimes something that we're mad at may just be revealing something in us that needs to be dealt with. I think this passage reminds us of that. So you can see how asking the question, what does this passage teach me about humanity, can lead to an application. It can lead to an application for your life. Okay, now you're not having to squint your eyes and turn your head. It's just, it's just there. Look at these people. Look at what they're doing. Wow, I see some of myself in that. Another thing about humanity we learn from this passage is that humans, they're all mixed bags, man. What's interesting is that Luke records this passage of Scripture, and the antagonists are the Jews, and the protagonist seems to be the Romans. I mean, you have some fairly decent Roman people here. 
Okay, Felix and, and the Tribune, I mean, these guys, are they seem to be interested in justice. They seem to be interested in doing what's right. They seem to be interested in trying to get um, Paul a fair trial. And you look at that and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it reminds us, I think, of sometimes the fact that even though we are wretched, even though our nature is at war with God, we still bear the image of God. We still have the imago Dei, meaning we still can do godly things, but God is ultimately the one doing that through us. So we learn some things about humanity in this passage. Second question is, what does this passage teach us about God? What does this passage teach us about God? This is a really important question to ask of any text. What does it teach us about God? I believe it teaches us this. It teaches us that God is providentially working all things according to his purpose. He's providentially working all things according to his purpose. You step back from this passage and you look, wow, even though God's not mentioned in this, He's all over it because he is working all things. Now, just take a look back to verse 11. Look at verse 11 of chapter 23. I want you to see what what precedes the story we just read. Jesus comes to Paul and he says, the following night, the Lord stood, stood by him and said, take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm going to get you to the finish line. And the finish line for you, Paul, is Rome. What that means is that Jesus is working. God is working all the details to get Paul exactly where he wants him. To get him exactly where he wants him. Notice all the things that just so happen to happen in the passage. Okay, The plot just so happens to be found out to kill Paul. The tribune just so happens to favor, favor Paul and go over the top uh, Andy, can, can you stop playing with your crutches? It's really distracting for me. You can do that later. Uh, the tribune just so happens to favor Paul and give him this excessive escort. Even puts him on a horse so he doesn't have to walk, right? Felix just so happens to receive Paul graciously with favor. I mean, it's like, just so happens, just so happens, just so happens. What is happening is that even though God is not mentioned in this passage, God is working in this passage. He's working in this passage, and it reminds us that God has the power to deliver on his promise, which leads us to my last question, and we'll end here, and that is, what is the passage calling us to? What is the passage calling us to? It's not calling us to do anything. Did you notice that? And a lot of us have a hard time with that because we think the Bible's a rule book. We think the Bible's a self-help book. Self-help books tell you to do these five things and get these five results. The Bible doesn't work like that. Some of the Bible does tell you to do things. But much of the Bible is not, listen, much of the Bible is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. It's not telling you to do something, it's telling you to see something. I think this passage is calling us to see something. What it's calling us to see is, first of all, that God works in the secular details of life, if I can use that word. See, we tend to think of spiritual as anything that, that is sort of mentioning the Lord or church, that's spiritual. Devotion time, that's spiritual. Christian movies, that's eh, maybe not so spiritual. Um, you know, like it's, it's like those are spiritual things and then me going to work, eh, it's secular. You know, me getting him walk the dog, eh, it's secular. Putting on my shoes, washing the towels, scrubbing something off the floor, wiping pee off the seat, that's secular, right? I have a, a four-year-old boy. Um, it's never me. Um, it's always him. But it's like, that's secular, right? Secular. That's secular stuff. You could look at a passage like this and go, it's not a spiritual passage. It doesn't talk about God. Just read on. Is it a spiritual passage? Absolutely. 
Because God works through the everyday things, doesn't he? You, you know, you, you sit back and you think, my life has been a waste because I just worked a job for 40 years. Or I just raised kids, you know, I just wiped boogers or I just, I, just, I just worked and worked and worked. That was all secular stuff. I wish I could have done something for the Lord. And what you forget is that God is less interested in what he can do through you and he's more interested in what he's doing in you. And the way that he does that is through the everyday stuff of life. That's when he's working in you. Paul could sit here and go, this is a waste of time. I'm getting transported from here to there. Let me get back to doing ministry. And God would say, no, Paul, I got you right where I want you. Right in the middle of the everyday stuff. The stuff that seems like it doesn't matter. That's where the Lord is involved. There's another book in the Bible that feels very secular. It's called the book of Esther. You should read it. It doesn't mention the Lord at all. Not one mention. Where is Yahweh, man? And then you read the book and you step back and you go, he is all over that thing. He just so happens to bring Queen Esther into this position of authority and power so she can redeem her people. So she can have a voice and save God's people from annihilation. It's a beautiful story. And it's not a secular book. God's work and hand is all over it, man. We need to look at our life that way. We need to see our life that way. And I think this passage can remind us of that. This passage is calling us to see that Christ takes ownership of his work. Jesus is getting Paul where he wants to go. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. What was the rock? It wasn't Peter. Sorry, Catholics. It wasn't Peter. The rock was the declaration that Jesus was Lord, which is the gospel. That's the rock. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Acts 23 is a reminder that when Jesus said that, he meant it. Jesus takes ownership of his body. He will get you where he wants you. Man's worst often accomplishes God's best. He wants us to see in this passage, I think, that that when we feel things are out of control, God is still in control. You think Paul could have felt that? You think he had every reason to feel that? Like, man, this is out of control. People trying to kill me. I'm arrested. I'm never getting out of here. I'm getting transferred from this person to that person. He could have felt like things are out of control, but it's often in the uncontrollable circumstances that God's will is happening. Okay, some of you need to hear that. Some of you feel like, my life is out of control. Okay, and I'm not talking about the things you can control. I'm talking about the things you can't control. When your body rebels against you, when your mind rebels against you, when your kids rebel against you, where your job rebels against you, where everything around you rebels against you and you can't control it. Oftentimes, God's will is happening in the midst of the uncontrollable because he's in control. Whether you feel like it or not, he's in control. Okay. Now, I just want to wrap it up here and say that we came to those conclusions. Hopefully, some of those conclusions were life-giving for you guys. The reason they're life-giving is because they're not about you, <laughs> right? Like we, we think that we're going to feel better if we can find a verse that makes us feel better about ourselves. But the reality is, is we find verses that remind us it's not about us. Oh, it's relieving. So glad life is not about me. I'm so much happier when I read the Bible and realize this is about the Lord. This book's about the Lord. It's about him. It's about his glory, his work, his, his son, all of it. It's about him. So reading the Bible in context, it does a few things for us. It takes the focus off of ourself. Okay, it, it, it allows us to zoom out, see the big picture, that it's about him. Reading the Bible in context takes the pressure off of the passage. 
Do you see how the, the application that we were able to make wasn't all needed to be seen exactly in the passage because it was seen in the larger book? Okay, it takes the pressure off the passage. And lastly, reading the Bible in context, it makes you submit to the scriptures instead of submitting the scriptures to you. Okay, we need to be those that treasure the word of God. And treasuring the word of God means that we step back and we ask, Lord, what did you mean to say here? How can we understand it? And once we understand it, then we can ask the question, how does it apply to me? Amen? Okay, so I hope that's helpful. I hope there's some tools there for you guys um, to take tomorrow. When you get up, open the word. Ask yourself, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about humanity? What is this calling me to? Ask yourself, what is the context? Why was the Bible written? Why was this book written? And why was this passage written? Ask yourself those questions. It's helpful. Okay, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll have some, uh, some discussion time uh, after. Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, that you love us, that you favor us, that you consider us, that you're patient with us, that you've bore with us, that you pursued us, that you called us, that you elected us, that you've given us your righteousness. Lord, thank you that it's not about our performance. We are saved by your performance. This morning, we just want to breathe in that grace. And we want to breathe out ourselves. Lord, help us to read the Bible with eyes that look to see your story. To see you lifted high, God. To see your glory manifested in the pages. Pray that we would be people of the book. Lord, that your truth would transform our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.